This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, the F-35 will be Canada's next-gen fighter jet. Should we be excited about it or a little concerned? Richard Shamuka is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and he walks us through the deal and the fighter jet itself. He tells us if the F-35 was the right choice, affordable choice, and how the F-35 could breathe life into Canada's struggling military and enrollment. Is being mediocre a myth? <laughs> Obviously, nobody's listening to this show who did this research. On the world of weird things, Greg Fish tells us how math can prove that talent and reward do not go hand in hand with success. We also get into how luck plays into finding your fortune. Plus, are you okay with vanity plates and payback? It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. A couple of things that we all have in common are not necessarily the things that we think we all have in common. You know, what do we have in common? Friends, family, pets, maybe, stuff like that, right? Most people, although they may not like flying on airplanes, when an airplane takes off at an airport, most people will stop and watch. It's amazing. When an airplane comes and lands and you can see it land from close up, most people stop and watch. Secretly, I think we're all fans of aviation. And that's what we've got here. Uh, we are, we're putting in our pocket protectors, Richard, and we're going to nerd out and uh, talk about the fighter jets. Richard Sh- Shamuka is a senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, joining us here to, um, put on our headsets and, and <laughs> our old school flight goggles from the old open cockpit biplanes, Richard, and nerd out a little bit. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm good. Thanks for being here. I thoroughly appreciate you sticking around and uh, jumping on with us so late. This is cool. Um, airplanes and aviation, you know, how did you get into, um, you know, this conversation about fighter jets for Canada? You know, is there one piece of it that really gets you inside the aviation world? Is it the military end of it? Is it the economics of it? What really gets you? Oh, I think it's actually all of it. I um, yeah. I, I do, but I... Watching a plane take off, uh, especially military aircraft, is is a bit of a treat, and I've seen quite a few in my day. So, isn't it? Though? But uh, it is. It's pretty. It's pretty in, in, insane, especially when you start to understand the various aspects of it. Like when you talk about, as you say, like just the the sheer engineering that goes into some of these aircraft, uh, mm. all the aspects of it, and then you. I mean. My background is bit on not just that, but just the, the economics and the program management side, and I find that really cool. Obviously, yeah. I write about it, I talk about it, um, and, and I mean, uh, having studied and worked in the field so long, I've met a lot of really interesting people, uh, some really genuine, you know, part of the Canadian forces. Let's say on because I specifically I'm, I'm a military analyst, right? So. Mm-hmm. Seeing that side is, is, you know, seeing how they think about things and, and the different perspectives and, and all that. So, uh, I mean, for me, it's all of it. I, it'd be tough for me to sort of pick out one thing, but uh, that's that's kind of my perspective on it. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I mean, your credentials and day-to-day experience in the past and today lead from defense management studies and, and all kinds of, you know, foreign affairs, defense policy and all of that stuff. So when you take policy you take the economics and then you take brand new f-35s i mean this is basically the the golden sparkle unicorn in your world of love affair uh, all coming together in one topic isn't it well it's been i mean i i would say i remember i wrote my first one was in i think 2010 so it's been almost well, like 13 years now i guess uh and it kind of came down to today or why well, not today i mean monday now so a couple days ago uh finally you know, 13 years of a process that I sort of saw kind of the starts of way back when to today. So, uh, I mean, it is interesting. Uh, and we're still a ways away from actually seeing the first aircraft, you know, even in, with a Canadian sort of uh, insignia. Uh, we're, we're, real, we're probably another 13 years away from seeing, you know, full-on Royal Canadian Air Force that are, is going to operate this aircraft, right? So, I mean, it's, it, this is a major milestone, one that probably should have happened at least seven years ago. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in some ways it is it is a, kind of a big step. Well, seven years too late, and beyond the seven years too late, you can probably add another 10 or 15 years too late to that. 
um, really, for at least when it comes to the pre-roll of this conversation. Now, F-35s is a product. There's typhoons. There's other ones out there that have been around. Uh, has had problems, has taken some time for them to sort out the bugs. It is almost less of an airplane as it is a multiple facet command center, you know, piece of technology. It just happens to be in the sky. So when we look at this, Richard, 2015, Justin Trudeau said there's basically, I'm paraphrasing, there's no way we're going to do this. I will not buy F-35s. Fast forward. Here we are. Um, is that where some of the debacle begins? How do you see this and take this anywhere, the, any direction? This is your lane, not mine. So take it whatever direction is natural for you. Hey, you've identified quite a few of the parts of it. I mean, when you talk about the F-35 as just being basically a flying supercomputer, that's pretty accurate. That's actually the most of the way I, that's the way I explain to a lot of people. But I think, to back to your question, um, yes. To, to some degree, 2015 is really the inflection point. What's not well understood is that in 2014, the Harper government was actually a week away from announcing the purchase of F-35. And they had made it a deal with the United States that they were actually going to trade. So they were going to get brand new F-35s right off the line within a couple weeks. And they would basically bought by Canada. And that would basically set in stone the purchase. Uh, whether or not, you know, he was going to lose that election and would this have reverse they've been really tough to do so but what happened because of as you say the comment that justin trudeau the campaign promise that he made basically set the whole process back for right till today right to this this eight year kind of or seven year gap and it's it's really what the way i kind of explain is that the facts haven't really changed like the underlying facts of the aircraft the cost the industrial benefits are can the big three that you know we look at right um Back in 2010, Department of National Defense and a lot of the, uh, the the bureaucracy, which does this sort of analysis, basically said, there's not really much point of a competition because you know what the costs are. We know it's uh, significantly cheaper than the other options. We're going to get a way better industrial benefits deal. And this obviously, this aircraft's much more capable than anything else. So fast forward to this last competition that we've just completed the same things were found, right? And if we, we can even look abroad, if we look at Finland just finished the competition, it did the exact same thing. And their costs are higher because they're not a partner in the program, where Canada has been a partner in the program for basically almost 20 years now. So what's changed is that, and I think we've seen this with the Trudeau government, they've had to kind of, the political sort of, the political facts, or the political understanding has, has had to evolve from, you know, it's a very simplistic comment as he said oh this aircraft doesn't work and it's too costly and all that to where we are today where you need a non minister of national defense basically says no this is the best option we've signed a contract you know um, this is going to be great for canadian security and we're going to get a great deal for industrial side can you explain the uh, contribution part some people might not quite understand that this particular development of this aircraft was not solely done lockheed martin like there was there was there was contribution from all kinds of different countries coming in and saying, hey, here's what we would need. This is what it needs to look like. This is how it works. My understanding was, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it was primarily NATO uh, you know, or uh, countries that were involved in that, but not everybody was. Is that? Can you explain that a little bit? Okay. So I'll try to make this really brief. Normally how Canada purchases equipment abroad, they does, let's say well, I'm going to use the United States. So if we're going to buy a piece of equipment, let's say the C-17, which is our large uh, transport aircraft that we use. We buy what's called through the foreign military sales process. And so we buy basically an aircraft. All every, The United States government actually shepherds the purchase. They actually act as an agent. And they basically say, okay, this is the cost of it. This is how much it's going to cost you to get all the parts for it, all the ancillary equipment, and, and all the things you need to operate, and the training as well. What what happens is there's a side deal that Canada does with the manufacturer, in this case Boeing, for the C-17, where they say, okay, we require what's called offsets. And Canadian policy is to ask for 100% offsets. And what are offsets? It's a reciprocal arrangement where, so we spend for every dollar that Canada spends to buy parts or C-7, uh, parts for the C-17 or the C-17 as whole, let's say that's, I'm going to make up number $4 billion dollars. It requires the Boeing aircraft company to invest or it's the same amount back in Canada. Now, there's some 
ways of formulas that work and all that. But it's that's basically the rough edge of it. Is that it's mm-hmm. this offset arrangement is required for everything Canada buys. The F thirty five is different because Canada joined this partnership I talked about earlier, and there's nine partners. They're all no, they're not all NATO. Uh, Australia is one of them. Uh, so uh, basically, right. in this case. Instead of this reciprocal arrangement, Ken was able to actually get its industrial, uh, all the Canadian companies are actually able to go and buy, or sorry, excuse me, bid for contracts on producing parts for every single F-35 made. So there's a whole bunch of country, companies in Canada. Uh, I'll give you an example, Haroub DevTech in uh, Quebec, uh, Avcorp in uh, Delta, British Columbia, um, Magellan Aerospace in uh in Manitoba, they all actually produce parts for every single F-35 produced, no matter if we buy them or if, you know, the United States Air Force buys them, if the Royal Air Force buys them. So there's Canadian components in every single F-35 produce, produced. That's a real different chain, real different uh, situation than how we do every single of our contract. And it was actually how the United right. States designed it because they wanted to have more partners in there. So they actually had skin in the game. This causes a lot that of problems because of how our bureaucracy works, but that's basically the rough explanation of it, as best as I can kind of put yeah, it out. Okay. Canada bought F-35, spending a lot of money to get them, uh, less than the CF-18s in number, but far more effective, that's for sure. Our guest right now to talk about this is Richard Shamuka. He's a senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. Now, Richard, I got a text message here. It says, Germans and Swiss are extremely well-known for quality of aircraft. Couldn't we have got a better deal or better quality? Um, Typhoon was another one uh, that was tossed about. Um, are we missing the boat, or is the F-35 the best one for us? pretty well the best one for us uh canada's actually a partner in the program actually some of the requirements especially with the cold weather requirements uh canadian representatives actually asked for or uh, pushed for so that you know it can operate at negative 40 degree uh, temperatures that we see up in the northern uh, foreign operating locations mm-hmm. uh in terms of cost it's significantly cheaper and part of the reason why is numbers uh every year there's over 100 120 150 that are being built of these in I believe it's as of last year, there's more F-35s than any other fighter. And by the end of the program, there's just going to be more F-35s than every single other aircraft that's been, uh, every other fighter that it was competing against. And that production scale really drives down the price. That because they're basically able to mass produce these aircraft. And there's such a large parts pool available for it that the cost of it was significantly less. Up to, in the case of the Eurofighter, it was probably twenty to the twenty to twenty five million less per aircraft, or sorry, F thirty fives were twenty to twenty five million less than per than uh, than another uh, Eurofighter. You know, when you kind of do a rough apples to apples kind of uh, comparison. Okay, so that's good to know. So, I mean, financially, the most responsible, excluding the seven year delay on cost, um, that would be a big one. Cost from seven years ago when this was. I guess it's more than that, six, seven, eight years ago, roughly, when it was going to happen, and then seven years ago when it was the no way were we ever going to buy F-35s, Justin Trudeau said, costs have changed too. Costs haven't changed that much, and it's partly because the United States and all these partners have kind of kept to their orders, and there's actually been more orders that have been put on because actually Germany has decided to buy, uh, has actually uh, decided to buy Eurofighters themselves, or excuse me, F-35s themselves. Then you had Finland, which wasn't seen to be a, a likely purchaser of it. They actually they selected as well. It, it, that's kind of the underlying story of the F-35. It was kind of conceived of back around 2000 to replace a whole wide range of aircraft, not just American ones. There was the F-16 and the F-18 and the A-10 in the United States, but also a huge number of aircraft that were being utilized by all these other partner uh, countries, and sort of allies, as we said, like with, with Germany and whatnot. Okay, it's fascinating stuff. All right, um, internal combustion engines, our government um, says they're going to ban them by 2035 or some crazy number like that. I mean, I just thought that in the aviation nerd, for just a few seconds, if we could bat around the ball, turbine engines are internal combustion engines. I mean, the irony, I realize I'm reaching a little bit here. The irony does not escape me, though, that... Um, 
you know, when it comes to, and I'm a big fan of us feeling safer as Canadians, because recently here on The Shift, we've spoken about safety and feeling safe with our military, uh, which will lead to the next question. But, I mean, we're looking at these kinds of things where I think, to me, this is a good example of sometimes getting what you need doesn't fit ideology and some of those those pieces of the puzzle. Can you talk about those jet engines? I mean, electric stuff has always been tossed about. We are so far away from anything like that inside aviation and the military and aviation. I haven't heard anything other than small planes flying like an hour. And it will probably won't change that much. You might see some low-end drones. Some low-end drones, uh, smaller drones do obviously do use uh, batteries and whatnot. And we see those there yeah. become more and more prevalent on the battlefield. However, the power density for uh, jet engines, kerosene basically, is, is unmatched, especially, and you can't, there's no way you can do it at very high altitudes at the speeds required to operate effectively. For the foreseeable future, we're basically stuck with, you know, jet engines, turbofans, and whatnot. Uh, mm-hmm. We are talking about hypersonics now. Those are also combustion engines, right, scramjets and whatnot. Those are, those are basically going to save for foreseeable future there's no there's nothing even remotely close uh or even conceivable really that can that can replace this kind of capability well and some of the drone stuff is doing fantastic on a small scale so i mean it's possible that it's maybe found its role which is cool feeling safe in canada though richard that's one of the things that we've chatted so much about here the number of pilots has been down the number of military folks in general has been down if the choice is to chase a career and go fly a 40 year old maritime plane um the cp 140 aurora when canada's still slow to buy poseidons the uh uh the the, um the p8s uh you know does this inspire maybe people to say okay i don't have to fly a rickety old nuts and bolts airplane i get to fly the best maybe i will fly for the canadian air force do you do you see that this inside the policy could be good to inspire participation 100 percent. i'm going to use a quote from the form one of the former chief of the air staff angus watt where he said the biggest recruitment tool i have is new aircraft on the ramp so then that's in 2008 um, and I think that's clearly the case. And I, and I can tell you, this is one of the reasons why the fighter force is in such atrocious state. It's, and it's not completely about this, but especially when in 2015, when that comment was made, and then the government tried to do what's called the interim buy, which is to buy Super Hornets, and then they canceled that and then bought surplus Australian Hornets. I know. Many it's of like the they pilots, bought them from Kijiji. Oh, it basically, I mean, it, 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 I I don't want to go in there because I mean it's it's, it's a, <laughs> one of the worst kind of ex- I mean it, this is a whole other I can you know expound on but anyways one of the one of the biggest things that I had, you know talking to the pilots at the time and this is about the time when a lot of them started actually facing F-35s in um, exercises because the United States is really have really big about exercises and trained air. Just want to let you know, Richard. Uh, okay. I just have about thirty seconds here, just so you yeah. know. Yeah. So so those pilots face it in like. We're screwed. We're flying a 35, 40-year-old aircraft. We're, we're nowhere, and I don't see the chance I want me to fly anything like this, and a lot of those pilots left. And now we're yeah. facing a problem where we just don't have any way to replace them, and are, you know, we're in really bad state. And I imagine it's good for everybody on the ramp, technicians, mechanics, everybody, even guys pushing planes around with tractors. A lot more fun. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is cool. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, uh, Richard, I've got to, uh, I've got to leave it there. I can nerd about this for days, so we will bring you back on, uh, Richard Shamuka, senior fellow, McDonald Laurier. Thank you for staying up with us and being a part of this conversation on the shift, brother. Absolutely, been my pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird Weird. things with Greg Fish. Now, I would like to say Greg Fish is my weirdest friend, but it's really, I don't know, it's a debate. We have a lot of weird friends here on the program, so let's see how weird we get here. And I will start with this, the definition of uh, meritocracy, government or the holding of power by people selected on the basis of their ability, a society governed by meritocracy, a ruling or influential class of educated or skilled people. The world of weird things is what it is. It's worldofweirdthings.com. Is there no such thing of 
classes holding power. Greg Fish, how are you? I'm doing fine. How about yourself? I'm good. Thank you very much. Uh, funny how your um, computer science left brain is applying math to about a social topic. Well, not just mine. This is studies. It's more just I understand enough about the studies to actually go through them and understand what they're what they're talking about on a statistical level. So let's let's talk about a meritocracy for a second. So we are all raised to believe that we live in a meritocracy. And if we excel at certain things, then we will be rewarded, commensurate with our talent. So people who mm. are extremely talented get rewarded extremely well. Now, the problem with that is that when we actually look at the statistics of and the demographics of who is who do we consider wealthy? What do the population of wealthy people look like? What is the population of successful people? Success as defined by career stability, belonging to upper middle class or millionaires or the ultra wealthy. When we look at those demographics, they don't really add up with the demographic of society as a whole, which brings a lot of researchers to start questioning, well, why is that? But we can talk about that for many, many, many episodes. Um, instead, I wanted to focus on the science because I found some very interesting studies that actually looked in the statistics of talent versus luck versus reward. So hmm. with and just looking at statistics themselves, they paint a very interesting picture. So the idea is that if we live in a meritocracy, luck shouldn't play that much of a role. It should all be right. down to talent. Yeah. But in the statistical simulation where we essentially pretend that everyone has the same exact start and everyone just has a spectrum of talent, it turns out that luck plays the dominant role in success and reward when we essentially run that simulation and say, how do we let's go ahead and map it to the distribution of wealth that we see in the real world who okay. ends up in those positions of wealth and power and success we just had a similar conversation and if i'm hearing what you're saying properly fish i mean it's obvious um that you're successful because of your good looks i mean so exception to the rule but right, i would say right i would say that you uh that the the reality uh that there's so many variables to this, so we'll speak to that in a second, because in life, there's a million layers of variables that we go through. Tough to calculate, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Applying for jobs. When we apply for jobs, applying for jobs very similar to sort of social stas, status and class, right? Some people become wealthy by being self-employed. They got the hustle. They sell the stuff. They make the money. Off they go. Most people choose a career, get an education, and follow that career path, make their way. We're uh, talking about jobs. When you apply for a job today, online websites, whatever, which is the prominent way to at least submit your, your, your information for any job, whether you know somebody or not, there's usually a checkbox around education. When somebody um, doesn't have a degree in today's world, they get filtered up. So somebody could be a, uh, running a truck driving team for 25 years. Somebody could be working in their career for 25 years. They could be a millwright that knows how river pumps work. They can be all kinds of things for decades and decades and be a full-on expert in that field, but they don't have a degree. And the job, because some HR person was like, let's hire someone with a degree, completely arbitrary, puts in a checkbox on the application that says, do you have a degree in engineering? Do you have a degree in this, a business? Do you have a degree in HR studies? Whatever it is. Those systems filter people out by a checkbox today. If you can't afford to have a degree, applying for many jobs online filters you out before they put you in a separate pile before they even, they won't even look at you. They won't even know that you, by the way, we just hired a kid out of school that's got two years of experience, but he's got a degree when we could have had one of the most influential, you know, uh, I don't know, civil 
service uh, road builders in the history of Canada actually run our department. And the only reason why is that checkbox. I bring this up because when you talk about success, when you talk about um, the luck of, of being successful, there's all kinds of stuff we're putting in people's way out of convenience and laziness that probably shouldn't be put in people's way. That's got to be a problem in this. Yeah, it absolutely is a problem. And yes, the, the college checkbox is exactly what you described. And I have hired people who don't have a degree but have the correct aptitude for it because, in, right. in my opinion, if they can show that they understand it and if, if they really need the degree, they can get it later. That's, yeah, there's no degree in again, problem solving, right? Yeah, again, again, it depends on it depends on the position, it depends on qualifications, it depends on a thousand little things, and then there's also the issue of when people apply online, um, they're filtered by keywords and buzzwords, and so so there's yeah. there's a lot of layers to that. But when we talk about success, there's the there we need to start talking about things like what separates people who are consistently successful, the people who are kind of in that. Uh, upper upper cast of success, so to speak, um, and the people who can't quite get into that wrong. So what what happens there? If the talent if talent is not really helping you, why and how do people become very successful? So the reason mm -hmm. why the talent doesn't really help is because well, first and foremost, um, if we define what what do we define as talent? I would define talent as having an aptitude or having a, some sort of a innate ability that makes doing a particular task easier it just it just comes easier to you it's just it, it's just something that you pick up faster it's something you can do more with than the average person in this particular capacity but the thing about that is is that talent marketable is that how in demand is that talent how many people are hiring for it? Can you make a living off of it? If you can, and you can be super... Let's say that you're a fantastic actor. There's a lot of people out there who are fantastic actors. They will never be in an, in an audition. We will never see them in the movie. We'll, we'll, we might see them in like a community theater play at the very most. So there's, there is that big factor of luck. And the thing is, when we look at people in any particular field who are at kind of the top of their game, if they make up that that upper 20%, upper 30% of the bell curve, they're still a minority. So lucky events, things that allow you to get hired and make money are going to happen more often to people who are in that, you know, middle 60 to 80% of the bell curve. Just because mathematically, there's more people that will cross with more events. So what happens when people are in that kind of upper echelon so to speak people who come from wealthy families let's just put it let's just put it bluntly people who have a lot of resources they can set themselves up to catch that to be there when that luck hits they go to the right schools they talk to the right people they make the right connections they get the right paperwork they get the right internships. So they, they keep setting themselves up. So when there's an opportunity, they can jump on it and capitalize on it. So they create as many as many luck-producing events as they can. And a couple of them is enough to propel them to the top of the industry, to propel them to massive paychecks, to success, and then give them the access to keep going and, and make themselves bigger and bigger and more and more successful brands. That's what's, that's what's really happening. So if you can't afford to have as many chances at success, you're probably not going to get it, just mathematically, statistically speaking. Okay, so I hear that's awesome. I hear a lot here. When sometimes we dream about buying a house or buying some land, and we don't often, sometimes something will go up for sale and it gets sold, and then you're like, I didn't even hear about this thing going up for sale because we're waiting for the retail market to tell us that that piece of dirt is up for sale, right? Maybe it's our dream lot or our dream acreage or whatever it is. And the reason why we don't hear that it's going up for sale is because it probably happened in a conversation 
in some sort of club, the previous person who owned it. This is that wealth network thing. And then it got actually got sold before it hit market. Like it never actually makes it to the market because they're like, hey, I got this thing for sale for 10 million. 10 million. Anybody want it? Oh, man, I'd love to build a strip mall there or whatever it is, right? Like it, it doesn't even make it to market. You have to be so far upstream. When we are downstream in the retail end of the market, we're so far downstream that we're, we're layers and layers out of the game. Is that what you're talking about, about networking and access to these opportunities, whether you mentioned internships, knowing the right people to get my son to get his internship at X corporation worth billions because he's going to meet the right people and make the right friends? That's exactly what I'm talking about. So when people talk about, so I, I, there's there's all of these terms that fly around, like you know, privilege and 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 the stuff that makes people's ears curdle now because it's been so abused and overused and put into context where it never should have been. But when we talk about privilege, this is really what we're talking about: having the wealth and the connections and the ability to set yourself up for success because you're. You're part of all of these networks where you get the information first, you get the access first, you get the first crack at things. So the reason why there are a lot of people who are extremely successful is it doesn't mean that they don't work hard. It doesn't mean that they don't have talent. And and what I'm saying should never deny that. But if they have talent, that ability to hear about those job openings, to hear about those promotions, to hear about those investment opportunities that they can jump in, they can show that talent. They have that opportunity to shine and apply those skills. But we can't remove the luck part. We can't remove the insider info part. And so when these people turn around and say, well, we live in the meritocracy, and if you're talented, then this will pay off. And our rebuttal needs to be, okay, great. How exactly is this going to pay off? When exactly are we going to the opportunity to apply for this? When exactly are we going to get the opportunity to work at these kinds of jobs? When do we get this kind of competition? What exact steps do we need to make in order to hit that level of success? Because if we lived in a true meritocracy, all of us would essentially have a guide to say we do these things and we get this reward, and this is consistent, and we could do this every single time. The fact that those guides don't actually exist other than, and, and, and let's not pretend that you know all these fluffy motivational speeches about how to be successful and about guide to your success in 180 days, that's nothing but fluffy advice that literally everyone has read all mm. the time. Let's well, not pretend that this is the days. same thing. No, it's not. So, okay, meritocracy. But is this, this question comes to mind. Uh, are we using the wrong language here, Fish? Because you said opportunity to apply for this. Uh, meritocracy, to go back to the definition of the article that we have here about, and the math calculations that it's not happening is the math calculations that it's not happening. That's not up for dispute. But for the sake of discussion, though, a society governed by meritocracy, a ruling or influential class of educated or skilled people, basically meaning the people are running the thing, everyone gets the shot. Now, but we just said opportunity to apply for these jobs. But we do have equal opportunity to network. We do have equal opportunity to meet people. We just don't go out and do it. So is the problem a belief in meritocracy? Or is the problem that we believe that it should be given to us, whereas through the course of job applications, to the example you're using, versus the belief system that says you've got to go out and get it. You need to meet these people. You need to stand outside that restaurant, introduce yourself to Steve Jobs, and say, I'm the best engineer ever. My name's Bob, and I'm going to move my way up in the world. Are we waiting for someone to come save us? Or should we be going out and chasing it? Is the problem not the belief in meritocracy, but the sort of oppression of class status that we just get told that, oh, someone will give you a shot? Well, if you stand outside a restaurant and you try to meet a tech mogul and tell him you're the best engineer ever and you're going to change the world, you're going to get maced and dragged away by their <laughs> security. Let's, let's just be honest about that. So... Here's the here's the crux of the matter. It's a little bit of everything that you said. On the one hand, there are people out there who could be doing more, who are stopped by either anxiety or they're not really sure how to 
what to do or they've been told that it should be handed to them because they're so smart and so brilliant. Um, There's not that one unifying answer. There's also a stratosphere of people who, unless you are introduced to their club by someone or you're born into that strata, you're just not going to get those opportunities. Or if you're going to get those opportunities, they're going to be extremely rare because your paths are almost never going to cross. Really, the issue is that some of these, that belief, we have this belief in the perfect meritocracy that that if you go out there and you hustle, then things will happen for you. And the reality is, is that's not necessarily a given. And once we accept that, and once we start saying, okay, well, how can we make this a little bit more fair? How can we make sure that everyone kind of has the same starting point? How can we make sure that people have at least similar opportunities to go out there and succeed. We don't okay. want to. We don't want to guarantee. We don't want to guarantee success of um, success of outcome because that I don't think that's that's going to be ever possible. That's just not. Mm-hmm. That's just not going to happen. I don't think the universe would would tolerate that. Um, something would happen to prevent this. But if you start at least with equality of opportunity and have more people getting a chance, you might see a higher average level, so getting a little bit closer to that actual standard meritocracy. I think it's definitely an aspiration, and we mm-hmm. should absolutely pursue getting to a more meritocratic society. We just need to accept that we don't actually live in one now, and we should stop saying that. And if we insist that we actually are, let's make the rules a little bit clearer. Let's you know communicate very transparently these are the these are the challenges of getting to a true meritocracy, and this is how we can tackle them. Okay, so it's fascinating. So when you talk about the math and the luck involved with sort of basically class climbing, that's really what it is. Um, the uh, you know you might be qualified by your class to be the valet at the country club, um, but you could meet the right person who is in the country club member who's willing to listen to your idea every day when they park the car and they're like, I got a great idea. I got a great idea. You might meet the right person who actually listens to you and says, Hey, that's a great idea. Why don't you come inside and tell me about it? The other guy in the valet just might not meet that person willing to listen. Is that we've only got about 30 seconds. Is that the luck part? Meaning that one person can become a valet and become successful or meet the beautiful, rich man or woman. Uh, and the other person could go become a valet and nobody ever listens to them. Roll the dice. That's where the calculation lands. Yep, exactly. Or you can have a brilliant invention. No one listens to you. Or you can have, uh, or you can have one idea that takes off. You make a ton of money, but the business fails, but you still have a ton of money and you can try again. Cliche says it only takes one. Pretty much. So you got to try got to try it's fascinating okay if you want to uh, get into this article it will be at shiftheads.ca the facebook group is where i'm going to post it why math says there's no such thing as true meritocracy i think the one thing we can agree on is that no work is a guarantee of no luck or no success hard work although it could be based on luck or a gamble if you will at least you got a shot at it that's probably a fair ball hey oh yeah absolutely you gotta you gotta do something you you you, yeah. you, you can't have sit at home with your idea in your head and go, come on, somebody, come and ask me what's my good idea. You got to go tell people power of declaration, which does bring up a lot of conversation about the word luck fish. We've had a lot of questions about the word luck. So we're going to dig into luck here on the shift as a part of this, too. Thanks for being here, brother. Always a pleasure. This is the shift podcast. Are you, are you are you okay 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 are you okay with you can let us know what you think 877-399-9898 are you okay with vanity plates i uh i want one whenever yeah, i get my pretty- first car yeah it's going to say oh hi mark i want that i really want that which is a reference to uh, the worst movie ever made that's so funny. I've seen it a million times called The Room. There's a very famous line where it just says, oh, hi, Mark. And I like the idea that, you know, you're driving along and thousands of people see your license plate, don't even pay attention to it. But then there's just one person that sees that and goes, ha, huh, and then drives away. That's all I need. Very nice. That's what vanity plates are for. 
I would agree. They can be super fun. I had one when I was DJing. My parents bought it for me. That was fun. Cool. And um, the coolest one I think I've ever seen is I was driving on Crowchild Trail going westbound in Calgary. I just got up the hill. I was by McMahon Stadium where the Calgary Stampeders play. And a Jeep pulled up next to me with a vanity plate that said license plate. They got away with that? Really? Yeah, it just said license plate. Yeah. How do you fit that on the plate? It was like L I L C N S P L eight. P L eight. Yeah, P L eight. That's amazing. It was fun. Right? That's amazing. Yes. Yes. Ten, I thought uh, if you points. ever need to remember hmm. what your license plate is, just remember that it's license plate. So I don't know. I think it's fun. I can get corny. For the low, low price of $310, you can buy a vanity plate in Ontario. You can write whatever you want on it, anything, as long as it isn't vulgar, or at least vulgar in the eyes of someone at a registry somewhere. Still, the province receives dozens of vanity plates requests every year that cannot be fulfilled. And now we have a list of all the rejects from last year. Are you ready? Always. Mm-hmm. Forever ready. All right. Um, one fat ass with a PH. <laughs> How did you think you'd get away with that one? I don't know. That one's dumb. 2020.wtf. Fair. I'm fair. The W2ETF is obviously the thing that knocks it out there, but uh, that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's fair. I, some of these are fun. Um, five hit. Five hit? Mm-hmm. So the five looks like an S, right? It's a five. Uh, H-I-T. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah, good. Like shift head. Kind of like that. Kind of um, like that. Uh, D-O-G-D-A-D-A-F. Dog dad A-F. Oh, AF, yeah. Okay. Uh, I like that one. That's cool. That's cool. That's pretty good. As um, fleek, you could argue that, that it's, doesn't you could. stand for it. It's, as it's still as not going to work. It's not. not at all. Uh, I'm sure you could come up with a good excuse for FK Trump, too, because that was one that got turned down. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. F-U-N-A-F, fun AF. Yeah. Um, I think this is this, this is probably someone named Holly. Because it doesn't say holy, it says holly. H O L L Y S H H. Holly shh. Good. Yeah. I think that, good. that probably could. Eh. Yeah. I don't know why this one gets rejected. I hate 401. I mean, most people would give that one a smile and a wave. <laughs> that's just, that's just anti government. <laughs> it's, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> it's revolutionary. That's what it is. Ford government's worried that that Numb nuts. Will inspire something. Numbnuts comes on here with a Z, N-U-M-B-N-U-T-Z. Okay. Numbnuts. Yeah, fair enough. P-I-S-S-T-O-F-F. Pissed off. Yeah. Okay. Um, S-E-X-Y-A-S-F. Sexy as F. Um, this one comes up as S-H-I-T-S-H-O. That would be the shit show. Uh, T-E-A-M-B-S. Team BS. Yep. Uh, and this is creative. Uh, Z-E-R-O-F-K-Z. <laughs> Zero F-K-Z. Yeah, yeah. Now, plates yeah. can get rejected for a lot of reasons. For clarity, readability, for the police, because you can't have like a misspelling that is impossible to read. Like, I saw a car speeding and his license plate was was fast how many a's was it i don't know um property trademarks intellectual property all of those things are there so um you know there's a long list of those is there are there any license plates that you know of that you've seen that you love 877-399-9898 maybe ones that you hate a little bit that's cool too um mine was keebler that was the old dj name from back in the day yeah yeah that's a good one. That was a nickname Darcy gave me. 
Um, some of the clarity and uh, readability ones were things like oh and bam and burr and gazoo and ooh and yay, stuff like that. Yeah, makes sense. Because you can't really tell what the plate is, right? How many uh, drugs and alcohol yeah. is another one. Um, so high. Uh, Smurf it, my pill, drunken buds. That's a ticket to get pulled over. Uh, Buy yep. weed. Um, boat. <laughs> I dorks. guarantee. I guarantee the weed one was somebody who owns a cannabis dis- uh, dispensary. Oh, I hope so. Hundred percent. It's a manager of a dispensary, but is trying to buy that. Well, probably the same as eight Kush <laughs> and zero four two zero. The oh, 420. Yeah. I like this one. Tequila, but it's spelled wrong. It's T-E-Q-U-E-E-L-A. I like that. Tequila. Tequila. Um, you can um, cannot do these ones apparently either. Um, VV Putin, Trumped One, uh, Mr. Free PM, Mr. COVID, CNN Lies. <laughs> oh, wrong country. Uh, 13 <laughs> Pulsia. Um, there's religious ones that you can't do. Biblical, Devil 03, From Hell, Hellboy, Lucifer 4, Mary Xmas, uh, X Devil, Dr. Jesus, Biblical, Dr. Jesus. Angelic 3, <laughs> Forseek. Um, then there's the sexual ones. Oh. Six Playboy, One Big Willie. These are all dude. ones that people tried to get. Your mama. Why? Oh, I like why? your mama. What do you like? Yo mama would be funny. Yo mama. Um, fart, I poo I. Um, a wee wee. <laughs> M13. Criminal yeah. activity. You cannot get gangster, violence, outlaw 95, the bullet, AK rebel, and 05 Magnum. Uh, to name a few that people did try to get. The thing about the plates, though, is that people really, you know, they really recognize your plate when you make them mad when they can remember the word, right? Worth noting, just saying. Worth. So how did we do with all of these plates? How do our plates compare to our friends down in South and Florida? What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida. Straight drill. (laughs) All right, here are some of the best vanity plates from Florida. I am God. And then there's this one, Foxy Lady, everything from CIA and FBI to Joe Blow. And they get so much better and so much worse. Watch. Gun for fun. Those are the license plates that have been rejected. Yeah, that's a little rude. That's rude. Okay. (laughs) They're not exactly poetry. Thanks, IRS. Oh, okay. (laughs) But these are actual proposed personalized license plates from drivers. H-O-E. That was rejected from the state. Good. Good for the state. Plates the state says are too dirty for your bumper. I don't know what the six, nine is. (laughs) Balls spelled with a Z. That one's fine. <laughs> I love it. No, Maybe it's, it's a basketball player. Uh, now yeah. it does take me back to the greatest of all of the game shows of all time. And if you're of my generation, you will remember Bumper Stumpers. So beautiful. So good. Are you okay with Payback? Payback. You know, I kind of feel like it plays into the whole revenge camp where it's kind of mm. like, you know, build it up, get the revenge, and then it happens, and then it never, you're never satisfied. I've never ever had a situation quite like that, except for a time uh, when I was a kid and we were playing Yu Gi Oh! like trading cards, and this kid wouldn't trade a card with me. So I actually mm-hmm. stole his card, and then I felt mm. super guilty about it and slid it back into his deck a few days later and it didn't feel mm. good. So no, I don't think it's necessary. It was kind of given into the anger, right? That's not, uh, that's not payback. That's your Catholic guilt kicking in there, buddy. Oh yeah. I feel like they go hand in hand. A lot of that. <laughs> a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> For once though, an animal got some payback on humans this week. A deer came charging into a butcher shop in Minnesota, forcing the business to close for a few days. Long visit. We're going to let you hear the full story because you need to hear the pun. 
run-in at a Minnesota butcher shop is leaving the business owner and hundreds on social media saying, oh dear. It's a viral moment caught on camera. Wow, this doe crashed into the She Said butcher shop just afternoon today in Moorhead. Luckily, no one was hurt and the deer appeared to be okay after leaving through the same door, kind of flipped around a little there. The shop had to close down to deal with the smashed door, but hopes to reopen on Monday. The shop's owner says she's not sure who was more scared between her and the deer, but the doe definitely has a story to go back and tell her friends about escaping the butcher. Uh, that's from CBS Minnesota. Some people might say that's just a lost opportunity at some sausage or steaks. The owner told KARE news partner KVLY that she was working in the back room with her daughter when the deer broke in. At first, they believed a pot had fallen over or a car crashed through the front of the business, as you would. A quick look at the sales floor revealed what really happened, and the deer went full-on Rambo. Smashed everything. At this point, there's no word on whether the deer survived the ordeal. On special, deer burgers. Oh, yeah, they definitely had a little revenge deal the next day. I, that deer right? was coming back for vengeance, and the next day, the butcher shop, venison, extra fresh. Well, I mean, come on. Think about it for a second. It's a butcher shop, and they haven't found the deer. Yeah. <laughs> the de- Oops. You can see the, you can see the deer li- uh, leave in the video, but we don't know where it left to and how far it got. <laughs> This is Minnesota. They don't mess around out in the Midwest there. Oh, Minnesota. Oh, that's pretty good, eh? Um, Yeah. (laughs) And it wasn't a wood chipper this time. Let's put it that way. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 